Listeners, welcome back to On the Road with Legal Talk Network. I'm Lawrence Colletting. We're very excited to be recording from our home studios in San Diego today because we have a tremendous guest joining us. Plus, we have a wonderful announcement to make about a brand new show on the network. But first, let's meet Chris Fabrican. He's the Joseph Flom Special Counsel and Director of Strategic Litigation at the Innocent Project, an organization in New York City dedicated to exonerating the wrongfully convicted through DNA testing, as well as asking for reforms, requesting reforms to the criminal justice system. An active public speaker on legal reform and social justice. You may have seen Chris in the Netflix documentary titled The Innocence Files. He's a former public defender and law professor with over 20 years experience working in criminal law from misdemeanors to death penalty cases. And most importantly, for the purposes of today, he's also the author of Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Well, your timing was perfect uh, when we connected on Instagram because we're getting ready to launch this brand new show with the California Innocence Project. It's called the California Innocence Project Podcast. And uh, I believe you know Michael Simanchik, the uh, managing attorney over there. Sure. He's the host and he does a wonderful job. I've learned so much from him. So I've been writing and doing, you know, some of the support research and putting together some of the episodes, but uh, I've learned so much from him. You know, I, my stock and trade in the law is, uh, you know, on the civil side of things, you know, doing business matters. So the criminal justice side had not had a lot of exposure to. So I've been learning a lot and all the different reasons that we go to prison for crimes we didn't commit. You know, we talk about false confessions. Believe it or not, people do falsely confess and there's reasons why. We talked about misidentifications and how bad people are at identifying each other. We even get into junk science. We have uh, several episodes dedicated to that, Chris. And we've had uh, very lucky to have a wonderful lineup of guests. We've had Amanda Knox join us. We've had Brian Banks join us. And of course, uh, the attorneys that work on cases like that, like Laura Nyrider. And for our listeners out there, you may have seen her on the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. And then uh, we also had uh, David Rudolph, who was the attorney for Michael Peterson in The Staircase, if you've seen that documentary as well. But Chris, for people out there that don't follow this genre, that don't follow criminal cases so much, this term junk science is kind of a catch-all term. And I was wondering, for the benefit of our listeners that aren't super familiar, junk science refers to some forensic sciences that fall out of favor. But can you give us your definition? You know so much more about this uh, than I do. So how do you define junk science and where did that term come from? So the way that I define junk science in my book is subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence. You know, it sounds like science. It has kind of all the trappings of science. Sometimes there's even some literature or textbooks associated to it. But fundamentally, there's no empirical basis for the opinion being offered. It's just an opinion dressed up like science and it hasn't been tested through the scientific method, subject to rigorous peer review or anything like that. The term itself, interestingly enough, it comes from your side of uh, the law. It comes from the civil arena. And it was a term that was popularized in a book called Galileo's Revenge by Peter Huber in the 90s. What was going on in the 90s, really in the 70s and the 80s, was that there was an explosion of personal injury litigation and toxic tort litigation and product liability. And a lot of those lawsuits were brought by plaintiff's attorneys using a lot of junk science, a lot of speculation that was being passed off as scientific evidence. You know, plaintiff's attorneys were hiring independent experts who were becoming so wealthy doing that type of work that they were not even practicing in the respective fields and becoming professional expert witnesses. 
So, you know, for me, you know, I'm not typically on the side of corporate America, but nonetheless, Peter Huber in this book, Galileo's Revenge, had a great point and he coined the term junk science, talking about these corporations that were getting sued through the use of really, really junk science. And so what they did in that field in corporate civil defense bar was tee up a case to the United States Supreme Court called Daubert. And Daubert was the landmark decision on scientific evidence in the United States. And it switched the script on the use of scientific evidence in this country and saying that judges could no longer defer to the relevant scientific community. Many states still do that. Fry is the standard in California. But generally speaking, which does defer to the so-called relevant scientific community, but generally speaking, courts for the first time were supposed to be acting as gatekeepers and excluding junk science from jurors' consideration. What happened, though, is that it worked on the civil side. And we got much, much better about uh, excluding junk science and where money is at issue. On the criminal side, nothing changed, despite the fact that we know today that half of all wrongful convictions proven so through the use of post-conviction DNA evidence are attributable, at least in part, to the use of discredited forensic sciences. Half, which is an incredible number, and yet nothing has changed in the courts as a result of this really landmark decision that changed it. And this is why in my book, Junk Science, I talk about poor people science. That's the science that we get in the criminal legal system because we don't really care about the validity and reliability of the science that's so-called science that's used to incarcerate and send to death row. American citizens and by and large are disproportionately black and brown people. And we don't care about that science. We do when money is at issue, but not when life and liberty is at stake. Well, I want to get into some of those examples of those types of sciences. And so, you know, in preparation for this new podcast that we're working on, I, I've gone down the rabbit hole on some of the uh, the true crime genre, including some really old episodes of Forensic Files. And we're starting to run across some of these things. And people did go to prison, just like you said, for some of these uh, forensic findings. And so maybe you could kind of walk down a list of some of these forensic sciences that have fallen out of favor that maybe not as accurate as they once were, I guess, thought to be, especially when people were convicted. The list is really long. You know, it's polygraph evidence, tire tread evidence, hair microscopy, bite mark analysis, shaken baby syndrome diagnoses, voice spectrometry, comparative bullet lead analysis, blood spatter evidence, you know, knife pattern evidence. And, you know, then you could also have other techniques that are generally reliable, but you have, you know, unreliable applications of that. You have, you know, insufficient amount of evidence or information in a latent fingerprint can turn an otherwise reliable technique into something pretty junky. And, you know, you look at, like I mentioned, voice spectrometry. Just last week, a story broke that was that the 911 caller that called into a police radio dispatch and the dispatchers or the police used that recording, tried to analyze it using the same junk science to say that this person was lying. So, you know, even these techniques that we try to eliminate after a lot of litigation and a lot of research that disproves these, it's very, very hard to dislodge it from the justice system once it gets into the as legal precedent. 
Well, before we get into that, because I definitely want to uh, talk about how it got in. There was a lot of things going on sociologically in the country that kind of drove us in that direction. But uh, let's hear some more examples of some of this. You know, uh, one of the big eye openers for me was uh, the study in shaken baby syndrome as part of our junk science series. And what was so insidious, at least in my mind, about it was that there were sort of these imperfect studies that sort of reinforced one another. And so what was like kind of the big takeaway from like shaken baby syndrome, you know, the the latency period and and all these things that they thought they knew that sort of proved who did it, the identification of the killer. What did we learn in later years about that particular junk science? Well, there just never been any real research into it. You know, I mean, in, in some ways it's similar to bite mark evidence in the fact that the proponents of this technique would say, well, we can't just shake babies and do the experiment, right? You know, so therefore we're just going to, you know, believe in it, you know, as, a, as an article of faith. And what happened really interestingly, you know, I mean, um, there was a child who died and that there was a shortfall that this child had experienced the day before the death. And it wasn't believed that a shortfall like that could cause the type of injuries that mimic shaken baby syndrome diagnoses. It was thought that that was not possible. And once that case became public, there were biomechanical engineers became involved in the forensic technique to demonstrate that how these children were ending up hospitalized and sometimes dead, despite these long periods of lucidity, right? So you you have a brain breed that will last for sometimes 24 hours. So a child will be acting relatively normally. And then the last person, the caretaker often that has custody of the child ends up being charged with a homicide, right? Because shaken baby syndrome not only diagnoses the alleged injuries, you know what I mean? But it also points to the perpetrator and, you know, establishes intent, right? Because there's this idea that, oh, we're frustrated and we shake the babies. But what you don't see in classic shaken baby cases is injuries to the child's neck. That would have to have occurred if you were shaking a baby back and forth violently enough to cause the type of injuries that are associated with shaking baby. And interestingly, the progenitor of the theory doesn't believe it himself, right? So this was just an idea, right? You know, I mean, and then, you know, following the science, you know, I mean, has rejected it. But, you know, now it's also called abusive head trauma and the proponents of it are dug in completely. And like a lot of forensics, and I write about this a lot in my book, is that the dissenting scientists in this field are attacked by, you know, the mainstream scientists, like dissenting scientists have been since the time of Galileo. But here, you know, I mean, like careers have been destroyed and it makes experts unwilling to come into court and testify. And that's the idea is to intimidate that. And that's a huge problem with forensics generally. Well, yeah, it's a huge blind spot, you know, in terms of like, you know, science, you have to continue to to look at it and, and continue to prove it or disprove it. And so, Bite mark evidence. You spend a great deal of time talking about bite mark evidence in your book. And that was one that really jumped out at me. You know, my dad's a dentist and, you know, I just recently discovered that I was grinding my teeth. So I got one of those like night guards to protect me from grinding my teeth. And I, I remember as we were researching that I was getting the impressions done and my dentist, you know, had that impression tray in there and they were painstakingly slowly going through. They're trying to get the right suction on that putty. And even after they got the appliance built, they were still kind of grinding it down just a little bit for a few minutes to make sure it fit properly. And I was just thinking about that. I'm like, how we could ever identify somebody's teeth on skin just seems kind of far-fetched to me. But that science got quite a role to it, even to the point where people were saying, hey, I can tell what race somebody is by looking at this bite mark. So tell us a little bit about some of the more audacious claims associated with bite mark science that obviously later got discredited. Every claim is audacious. 
Bite mark evidence is junk science from the beginning to the end. You know, the claim, number one, that you could even identify an injury reliably as a human bite mark has been debunked. The idea that skin can accurately record, you know, a bite mark is also ridiculous. You know, I, mean, I never saw one cross-examination, all the research I've done, all the litigation I've done in this, I never saw one cross-examination that pointed out that skin is constantly changing. Most of these are homicides, sometimes they're assaults too, but a decomposing body changes hour to hour to hour, right? And it begins with swelling and then decomposition sets in and skin shrinkage and slippage, you know, so teeth that so-called match one hour might not match the next hour. And this is just a moment in time that's being captured, right? And we never know how the bite mark was actually imprinted in the first instance. We don't know the orientation of it. It's gross speculation, but nonetheless, it's never been rejected. Even as we sit here today by any court in the country, there's no written opinion that says you can't bring in bite mark evidence anymore. And the practitioners, you know, the forensic odontologists, as they call themselves in court, had become so confident, not because of any research that they had done, because of how the courts embraced their so-called science, that they became so confident in their abilities that they began to make claims that they could tell that these were sexually motivated bites. You know, I mean, there's a whole article about like so-called typical homosexual bite mark evidence, which I cite to in the book, you know, and they're claiming the ability to tell race. And, you know, all kinds of nonsense, you know, it's just generally been accepted and it's led to over 35 known wrongful convictions and indictments, which is an incredible number when you consider how infrequently bite mark evidence is really used. Yeah. And I think it's challenging because some of that, like some of their sciences you were indicating was based on, they had done some identifications from dental records. Now those are dental records that have like fillings and, you know, other tooth damage and x-rays and things that uh, you can do a little bit more comparison to. So there was some foundation for identifications, but in the way that they were applying this, it just, at least to my mind, seemed pretty discredited. To quote a line from my book, you know, the claim that identification of human beings through the use of their dental records is the same thing as identifying somebody through bite marks is akin to a, a geologist claiming that because he or she can identify what type of rock that they can identify the rock that was used to bash in somebody's head, right? Those are totally distinct, have no possible connection between these two endeavors, right? But you can make it sound like they do. And that's what they did in court, particularly at the beginning when they would say that, you know, yeah, we identify people by their dental records of their teeth and we identify people by the bite marks those teeth create, right? It sounds simple, but it's not. And I was just going to point back to when you mentioned forensic files, because it always, you know, you see behind me, your listeners won't be able to see this photograph that I'm showing you, but that's Alfred Swinton, the top there. And Alfred Swinton served 17 years in Connecticut prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And he was thought to be a serial killer and he was on forensic files. And they showed that video for many, many, many years. And, you know, they'd only been charged with one murder, but the show suggested that he was a serial killer and they'd only been able to get him because of bite mark evidence. And after he was exonerated, I reached out to Bill Curtis. You know, I said, Bill, you know, client is innocent. Maybe you could take this on off the reruns now, right? You know what I mean? Because this is wrong. And we, he's not the only client that we've represented that has made an appearance on, on the forensic files, including Jimmy Genrick in Colorado, another case I write about in my book, which is a tool mark case. That's really interesting. You know, I think that that's one where, you know, just 
to do social responsibility ought to be pulling down if this person is ultimately exonerated. But before we leave the forensic scientist part, I learned something new about fingerprint evidence that I didn't understand. And so as part of my research that I've been doing for the last couple of years, I learned that, you know, context is really important to the evidence as you use it. For example, DNA. I did not know that DNA could be in a way transferred from one person to another. And so if you and I, Chris, shake hands and then I go up and talk on a podium, I have just put your DNA on that podium and you were never there. And so your DNA right. might be there, but we don't know what time it got there. We don't know what the fact that your DNA there means. We need context with it. I learned something from your book that I didn't know before. Fingerprints may not be as unique as we thought either based on they might be smudged. There might be a partial. So tell us about that because I think this is one that's going to surprise a lot of people because I think most people think that fingerprints are entirely unique, kind of like DNA. Yeah, to be clear, you know, a perfectly rolled fingerprint that, you know, we used to use to open our iPhones, you know, and make identifications, you know, and and we've been using fingerprints for hundreds of years to successfully identify people. And, you know, the human fingerprint probably is unique. I, you know, I believe it probably is, but that's not a scientifically validated fact. But what's more important in forensics is that when you're dealing with latent fingerprint evidence, you're dealing with a smudge at a crime scene. And how much of a smudge you need to be successful in making an identification is a subjective endeavor that varies from examiner to examiner. You know, I mean, what we don't know is how similar two prints can be. And when you're talking about a smudge at a crime scene, that can make the difference between wrongful conviction and a righteous conviction. And worse is that these and like virtually every forensic technique are subjective determinations. There aren't any measurements being taken. This is somebody eyeballing the evidence and deciding that's enough information for me to make an identification. Now I'm going to compare it to this suspect. And then beyond that, and something that I explore a lot in the book is the issue of contextual bias, right? Cognitive bias. And what that means is, is that we as human beings are influenced by facts that are irrelevant to our decision at hand, right? And that's just part of being human. So, you know, what happens in, you know, for example, there's a reason when we all go to college or high school, even if you go to a big enough high school where people aren't writing their names on their tests, right? They're putting their social security numbers. That's so this professor or the teacher doesn't have in his or her mind, oh, that's Becky. Becky is a straight A student. So I think this is probably going to be a very good paper and graded accordingly. Or this one is from Joe. Joe's an idiot. This is going to be a terrible paper. Same thing happens in forensics, right? You know what I mean? Is that you have a, a smudge at a crime scene and a fingerprint expert will have all this information about, oh, the suspect confessed or what have you, are very likely to declare a match, even though that may not be so. One of the most important experiments that's ever been conducted in this field that demonstrates this is done by Dr. E.T.L. Drawer. And what he did after the high profile wrongful arrest of Brandon Mayfield for bombing the computer train in Spain in 2004, based on a false fingerprint match, very high profile. And there was a lot of belief that because Brandon Mayfield was, happened to be Muslim and had represented somebody that had been convicted of providing material aid to a terrorist organization, that this is the guy. So Dr. Dror sent uh, gathered a group of highly qualified latent fingerprint experts and he sent them casework and asked them to do an evaluation on it. And what was really clever about the test was that he didn't tell them that it was from their own prior casework. And the only thing they changed was the contextual information that was included in the case file, things like the suspect confessed or there was an eyewitness. 
and that would point one way or the other. And three fifths of those experts changed their original conclusions based on nothing to do with the fingerprints themselves, only on the casual information that they had. So when you think about the subjectivity of fingerprints and all the other forensic techniques, including DNA, where the analysts have a prosecutor's theory, a detective's theory of guilt, that influence will manifest in conclusions. And that makes a, you know, sometimes a usually reliable technique, more of a prosecution tool to confirm what they already believed. One of the things I thought was really interesting was how impressed juries have become by some of these forensic sciences. And I, I got to admit, you know, when I watch forensic files, that visual appeal, like I've solved this puzzle and it can only be one person. It's a compelling idea. But in reality, these identifications are much more difficult. So you talked about this eminence-based knowledge versus evidence-based knowledge and, you know, how junk science, these forensic sciences got such a foothold, but they bypass the, the use of the scientific method. So you talked about some sociological conditions going on in our country, a movement towards mass incarceration. You talked about personal injury judgments. You talked about battle of experts. So what was going on? It seemed like it was kind of a confluence of a lot of different sociological factors, but also somebody can solve a problem here and there's rising crime, at least at the time, that's what they thought. So here's a solution to that. So walk us through that. Cause I think there's a lot there from the society angle that really pushed these forensic science into the forefront and juries really latched onto it. Yeah. You know, I mean, scientific evidence and science has always been very persuasive. There's a reason that all these advertisements say scientifically tested because science sells, right? Probably only sex is better sales than science, right? And this is why they make those types of claims. And in the post-World War II era, with the opening of the FBI's crime lab, which is still, you know, the, the leading crime lab in the world, is that forensics became part of popular culture, driven into the popular culture through some cases that I write about, like the Ted Bundy case and the Sam Shepard case. And forensics was just becoming organized in the post-World War II era. Board certification was being offered by forensic pathologists. Shows like Quincy came on the air for the first time. And Quincy and those types of shows, those early shows, Columbo, were the progenitors of what we have today in CSI and Forensic Files and the rest. And almost invariably, every show that your listeners can think of, right? Did they ever have a show where the forensics were wrong? or inconclusive? No, of course not. They were always right. They were always objective. They were fast, reliable, conclusive, right? And that was always the way that they were presented. And that's still the way they're presented today. So jurors, they bring this popular culture knowledge or uh, misinformation with them into a jury box. You know I mean? And there's many sociological studies that demonstrate that when somebody is declared an expert, like experts are in court by a judge, is that listeners tend to turn off their critical thinking skills. And you're talking about science, you know, scientific illiteracy is a widespread problem in this country and lawyers are hardly exempt from this. In fact, you know, the old joke about, you know, lawyers go to law school because there's no math, you know, holds, right? You know I mean? Most of us are afraid of science and certainly jurors are no different. So you get somebody that is put in front of a jury that is labeled an expert by the judge and said, you can, this is the only, only type of witness in this entire trial and any kind of trial that's just allowed to offer an opinion and to give an opinion based on a hypothetical, based on a hypothetical that is directly related to the facts. And you go through this entire person's curriculum vitae in front of the jury. And it all sounds very impressive if you don't know more than, you know, some of these board certifications require no more than paying dues, but they sound impressive in court. 
All right, we're running out of time, but I definitely want to hit just a couple more questions here. And so I, one of the things that's been so frustrating for me to learn is that, you know, exonerees after, you know, a particular science is proven not as accurate as people once believed, and there's big public outcry and it gets, uh, you know, featured in the news, they still have a very difficult time clearing their name and exonerating themselves. And so what causes that? You talk about this principle of finality, but I think I would add to that circumstantial evidence because oftentimes there are coincidences that point at a particular defendant versus other people. And coincidences happen. And I'm hearing the stories of people that have been convicted on circumstantial evidence. It can be hard to explain all of those coincidences. But in your book, you're talking about how sometimes when the case is not a slam dunk, a prosecutor will find one of these forensic sciences. And even if it's not ultra reliable. It's that last thing that pushes it over the finish line. But again, on the backside of that, when it's disproven later on, why is it so difficult for an exoneree or to get exonerated, someone that's innocent behind bars? Why is it so hard for them to clear their name? Well, there's a few things that you said there that are important to unpack a little. And that one of them is this, the circumstantial evidence cases. Our clients are not picked out of phone books, right? You know, typically there's some reason to believe that this person may have been responsible for whatever crime that they've been charged with. And our clients and our cases show that these are largely circumstantial cases, like it's not a husband, a, a lover, uh, you know, somebody that's, you know, has some motive one way or the other and circumstantial evidence suggesting that this person did it. And what happens with these kind of weak cases and you have these subjective techniques is that, and this is exactly the bias that we were just talking about, is that a police investigator or a prosecutor will say, we need more to bring an indictment. What have you got? And we see this in bite mark case after bite mark case and hair microscopy and shaking baby, all of these techniques is that they've already got the bullseye. Right. And so they're using forensics to paint the target around their bullseye. You know, what I mean, in, in other words, they're going to draw that you're going to be able to find forensics that will be able to associate the suspect with the crime scene because of the subjectivity associated with them and why it's so hard. I write about, you know, this phenomenon, the so-called unindicted co-ejaculator, you know, theories where they're trying to explain in post-conviction conclusive DNA evidence that's demonstrating evidence that courts will reject it and come up with entirely new theories. Oh, there was a third person there that nobody ever talked about ever, you know, the entire time. But now that we have this DNA, the only way that we can explain it is two things. One, somebody, you know, like a space alien landed in the crime scene, you know, I mean, and deposited DNA or that the client is innocent, right? And so they'll go with the space alien, the unindicted co-ejaculator instead of innocence, because there's all these forces that will resist the efforts to overturn these convictions. So, if you don't have conclusive DNA, you can imagine how hard it is. You know, these are why the shaken baby cases are so tough to overturn. These are why all these, because you can't really disprove them so much as saying that, hey, you actually just didn't have any evidence, right? So, you know, let's start over. You know what I mean? And that's what often we're arguing in these post-conviction junk science cases that there's no evidence anymore. I can't say, you know, is it theoretically possible that this person could have committed this crime? Sure. You know, like anybody else in the planet, you know, I mean, it's possible, you know, what I mean, but you don't have any evidence. So let's have a fair trial, one that there isn't this gross due process violation of introducing junk science and calling it conclusive scientific evidence of guilt. That can't be a fair trial. All right. Well, last question for you. You know, if someone out there's got a difficult case, I, I think especially for someone that's been behind bars for a long period of time, maybe their evidence file isn't as complete as it used to be. Maybe there's no DNA evidence in there available to point the finger at somebody else. What advice would you have for them? You know, it's a, it's a tough case. Maybe there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that kind of points in their direction, but they're innocent and they know they're innocent. Where do they go? 
You know, there are lots of organizations that folks can write to. There are innocent organizations all over the country. There are 60 of them. So certainly you should write to us. You should write to your local one. But, you know, more than that is that if you look at a case like Jabbar Collins here in New York, you know, he litigated his own way out of prison in that he filed FOIA requests. uh, That's Freedom of Information Laws or Freedom of Information Act requests that, you know, just, and this litigated his, to get all of his case files again and again and again, and never gave up on it and ended up getting, you know, the evidence that he needed to demonstrate his innocence. Same was true with Roy Brown here in New York. And so there are things that jailhouse lawyers can help work with just gathering the information, you know I mean? Because so much of post-conviction work is investigation. You know, we have um, an attorney here at the Innocence Project, Dara, whose only job is investigating these cases before we even take them on to see if we can find the evidence, find all the transcripts and all the rest. Contact their original attorneys, contact their appellate attorneys. You're supposed to be, you're entitled to your own file. So ask your attorneys for your file. You got to do as much of pounding the pavement as you possibly can on your own. Well, we've reached the end of the road for this episode, but I want to thank our guest, Chris Fabricate, for joining us. And if you haven't already done so, uh, check out his book, Junk Science in the American Criminal Justice System. He does a really great job at uh, weaving in storytelling. So if you're into the criminal justice space or the true crime space, I think it'll be really engaging for you, really taking those complex issues and distilling them down into easy ways to understand. And it's very engaging. So Chris, thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. My name is Lawrence Coletti. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.